Section 13 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Evidence from Rudimentary Organs, Part 2. Amongst animals of higher rank in the scale than insects, the presence of rudimentary organs is frequently to be demonstrated. What explanation, other than that of degradation and decay owing to disuse, can be offered of the case of the crabs from the Kentucky cave? Crabs possess compound eyes born at the extremities of highly movable stalks, these stalks in the sentinel crab being extremely elongated. In some of the mammoth cave crabs, the stalk remains, but the eye has completely disappeared. As the eyes in such a case could in no sense disappear from any reason connected with injury to the animal, we are absolutely without any reason for their absence other than that of disuse. Professor Silliman captured a cave rat which, despite its blindness, had large, lustrous eyes. After an exposure for about a month to carefully regulated light, the animal began to exercise a feeble sense of sight. Here, the modification or darkness had simply affected the function of the eye. In due time, the effects of disuse would certainly alter and render abortive the entire organ of sight. The possession of flying powers is so notable a characteristic of the class of birds that any exception to this rule, and the want of aerial habits, may be rightly regarded as presenting us with a highly anomalous state of matters. Yet instances of rudimentary wings in birds are far from uncommon, and several groups are, in fact, more notable on account of the absence of powers of flight than for any other structural features. The ostrich, for instance, represents a bird the wings of which are mere apologies for organs of flight, and which are used, as everyone knows, simply as aerial paddles. The curious apteryx, or kiwi-kiwi of New Zealand, a near relative of the ostriches and running birds in general, represents a still more degraded condition of the organs of flight, for the wing is reduced in size to an extraordinary degree, and exists in a highly abortive condition whilst only one complete finger is represented in the hand, other birds, as a rule, possessing three modified fingers. The logger-headed duck of South America has wings so reduced that it can but flap along the surface of the water, a condition of matters closely imitated amongst ourselves by the Islesbury duck, although indeed the young ducks are able to fly. The wing of the penguin is a mere scaly appendage, utterly useless for flight but useful as a veritable fin, enabling it to swim under water with great facility. And of the ox wing, the same remark holds good. In the birds, then, there is ample evidence of deterioration of organs in the rudimentary nature of the wings of many species. How these conditions have been brought about is not difficult to explain in most instances. In New Zealand, where we find a singular absence of quadrupeds, wingless birds, many being extinct, of which the apteryx is a good example, take the place of the four-footed population. In view of an immunity from the attack of other animals, the ground-feeding habits of these birds would become more and more strongly settled as their special way of life, and in the pursuit of such habits, the wings, seldom used for flight, would degenerate as time passed. The later advent of man, in turn, has exterminated certain races of the wingless birds, such as the dodo and solitaire in Mauritius and Rodriguez, whilst the wingless and giant Denornis of New Zealand and its contemporaries 
have probably been hunted to the death of their species by their human co-tenants of these strange lands the ascent to the quadrupeds brings in review before us still more striking illustrations of the apparently incomplete rendering of the structures of animal life no better instance of rudimentary organs of the naturalist can be found than in the group of the whales and more especially in the species from which we obtain the commercial whalebone and oil the greenland or right whale this whale possesses no teeth in its adult state but before birth teeth are found in the gum these teeth however are gradually absorbed and utterly disappear from the jaws the adult whale possessing as is well known a great double fringe of whalebone plates depending from the palate the same remark holds good of the unborn young of ruminants or animals which chew the cud these animals in their adult state possessing no front teeth in the upper jaw but in their immature condition developing these organs which by the way never cut the gum only to lose them by a natural process of absorption now here there can be no question of use and certainly no adequate explanation of their occurrence exists save that which regards these fetal teeth as the remnants of structures once well developed in the ancestors of the whalebone whales and ruminants to this supposition the evidence avowedly incomplete obtained from geology gives no contradiction even if it does not by any means supply the missing links in an adequate fashion we do know that amongst the oldest of the great leviathans of the past was the zuglodon of tertiary rocks which had teeth developed much in excess of anything we find represented in the dental arrangements of the whales of today a creature this of which as regards its teeth at least modern whales are but shadowy reproductions whilst under the shelter of great authority we may declare this ancestor of the whale to have been intermediate in nature between the seals and whales or between the whales and their neighbors the manatees or sea cows and dugongs in either case the intermediate character of the animal argues in favor of its having been the likely parent of a race dentally degraded in these latter days there is little need to specialize further instances of the occurrence of rudimentary organs in the higher animals save to remark that not the least interesting feature of such cases is contained in the fact that the milk glands of male animals amongst quadrupeds organs which exist in a rudimentary condition have been known to become functionally active and to secrete milk this peculiarity having been known to occur even in the human subject amongst the higher quadrupeds however there yet remains for extended notice one special instance of the occurrence of rudimentary organs wherein not merely is the nature of the parts thoroughly determined but the stages of their degradation can be clearly traced through the remarkable and fortunate discovery of the missing links moreover the case in point that of the horse so clearly illustrates what is meant by progressive development or evolution of a species of animals that it is highly instructive even if regarded from the latter point of view when we look at the skeleton of a horse's forelimb we are able without much or any previous acquaintance with the facts of comparative anatomy to see that it is modeled upon a type similar to that of the arm of man where we further to compare the forelimb of the bat and the foreleg of a lizard or frog with the equine limb we should find the same fundamental type of structure to be represented in all thus we find in the arm of man to select the most familiar example from the series just mentioned 
a single bone, the humerus, forming the upper arm, two bones, radius and ulna, constituting the forearm, eight small bones forming the wrist, carpus, five bones, one for each finger, forming the palm or metacarpus, and five fingers, each composed of three small bones named phalanges, with the exception of the thumb, in which by a mere inspection of that digit we may satisfy ourselves only two joints exist. In the wing of the bird we similarly find an upper arm bone or humerus, two bones, radius and ulna in the forearm, a wrist, a thumb, and two fingers. Now turning to the forelimb of a horse, the hind limb being essentially similar in its general conformation, and corresponding as close with man's lower limb, we find its conformation to correspond in a remarkable fashion to that of man's arm. First, there is the humerus, or bone of the horse's upper arm, concealed, however, beneath the skin and muscles, and being therefore inconspicuous in the living animal. The horse's forearm, like that of man, consists of two bones, radius and ulna, it is true, but the ulna has degenerated in a marked degree, and exists as a mere strip of bone which is tolerably distinct at its upper end, but unites with and merges into the other bone the well-developed radius. The wrist of the horse naturally succeeds its forearm, but from the fact of the upper arm being concealed beneath the skin and muscles, the wrist is not usually recognized as such. Thus, when a horse chips its knee, it in reality suffers a contusion of its wrist. Man possesses eight bones in his wrist, the horse has only seven, but the equine wrist is readily recognizable as corresponding with the similar region in man. The greatest difference between the human limb and that of the horse is found in the regions which succeed the wrist and which constitute the palm and hand. Man has five palm bones, the horse has apparently but one long bone, the cannon bone, in place of the five. Now to which of man's palm bones does this cannon bone correspond? The anatomist replies to that supporting the third or middle finger, and attached to this single great palm bone the horse has three joints or phalanges, composing his third finger. These joints are well known in ordinary life as the pastern, coronary, and coffin bones, and the last bears the greatly developed nail we call the hoof. Thus the horse walks upon a single finger or digit, the third, and it behoves us to ask what has become of the remaining four, five being the highest number of fingers and toes found in mammals or quadrupeds. We find that, with the exception of other two, the second and fourth fingers, the horse's digits have completely disappeared. The second and fourth fingers have left mere traces, it is true, but it is exactly these rudimentary fingers which serve as the chief clues to the whole history of the equine race. On each side of the single palm bone of the horse's great finger we see two thin strips of bone, which veterinary surgeons familiarly term splint bones. But these splints bear no finger bones, and the condition of the horse's hand or forefoot is therefore seen to be of most noteworthy and curious confirmation. It may indeed sometimes happen that two small pieces of grizzle or cartilage may be found at the base of the splint bones, and comparative anatomists incline to regard these grisly pieces as the representatives of the first and fifth fingers. The ordinary condition of the horse's hand may be summed up by saying that the animal walks on one well-developed finger, the third, 
and possesses the rudiments in the form of the splint bones of other two fingers the second and fourth these latter it need hardly be added are completely concealed beneath the skin and other tissues of the limb in the hind limb of the horse a similar modification is observed the thigh bone and kneecap are readily observed there is but one toe the third supported by a single cannon bone and there are likewise two splint bones representing the rudiments of the second and fourth toes the horse's heel like his wrist appears out of place and is popularly named his hock the shin bone is the chief bone of the leg and has united to it the other bone succeeding the thigh named the fibula and which is seen in man's leg and in that of quadrupeds at large to the eyes even of an unscientific observer who sees the skeleton of a horse placed in a museum in contrast with the bony frames of other and nearly related animals the equine type is admittedly a very peculiar and much modified one in place of five toes we find but one and in the matter of its teeth as well as in other features of its frame the horse may be said to present us with an animal form which appears as a literal example of Salonio's remark that nature hath framed strange fellows in her time a person of thoroughly sceptical turn of mind might possibly demand to know the exact reasons for the assumption that the splint bones of the horse are in reality the rudiments of the fingers we have represented them to be and might further demand proof positive of their nature fortunately geology and the science of fossils together come to our aid with as brilliant a demonstration of the steps and stages of the degradation of the horse's fingers as the most sanguine evolutionist could hope to see from mother earth whose kindly shelter has sufficed to preserve for us the remains of so many of the forms of the past we obtain the means for constructing a genealogical tree of the equine race by methods of certain kind and through the exhibition of fossils each bearing an impress of its history which to use cuvier's expression is a surer mark than all those of zadig our theoretical journey backwards into the ages begins with the recent or last formed deposits those which lie nearest the outer surface of our earth the recent or quaternary period forms a division of the tertiary period that is to say the latest of the three great epochs into which for purposes of classifying fossil forms by their relative ages the geologist divides the rock formations the tertiary rocks commencing the list with the last formed or uppermost strata begin with the quaternary or recent deposits next in order succeed the older pliocene rocks then come the miocene formations and lastly succeed the eocene rocks these last are the oldest of the tertiary period and lie in natural order upon the cretaceous or chalk rocks which themselves belong to an entirely different and anterior mesozoic period in the history of our globe the youngest or last deceased of the fossil horses we meet with are found in the quaternary and pliocene or the last formed deposits of the tertiary system between these earlier pliocene horses and our own equidae there are no material differences but near the beginning of the pliocene formations of the old world and in the oldest of the miocene rocks which lie below them we find a member of the horse family which differs in certain important respects from the horses of the recent period and from those of today the fossil horses alluded to are found not merely in europe but also in the siwalik hills in india 
and they must therefore have possessed a very wide range of distribution. When first discovered, Monsieur de Cristol called this species of horse Hipparion, a name which has been still retained for it, amidst that constant alteration in zoological nomenclature which is the labor of the foolish and the sadness of the wise amongst us. What are the chief peculiarities of Hipparion? Briefly stated, in the larger development of the splint bones, which, according to Owen, must have dangled by the side of the large and functional hoof, or third toe, like the pair of spurious hooves behind those forming the cloven foot in the ox. This confirmation, continues Owen, would cause the foot of a parion to sink less deep into swampy soil and be more easily withdrawn than the more simplified horse's foot. Furthermore, the ulna or bone of the forearm, deficient in the horse of today, is tolerably well developed in Hipparion. Backwards in time, and in the older Miocene formations of Europe, another fossil horse was disentombed, and was duly described under the name of Anchitherium. This latter horse possesses a completely developed ulna in the forearm and fibula in the leg, but its chief point of interest lies in the fact that each foot possessed three fully developed toes, which apparently must have touched the ground in walking. Already our splint bones are seen to better their condition as we pass backwards through the ages, and to appear as the natural supports of well-developed second and fourth toes. Here the geological history of the horse in the old world may be said practically to end. Modern history assures us that the first horses which peopled the New World, and whose descendants roam over American prairies as the famed Mustangs, were imported by the Spaniards at the period of the Mexican conquest. Geology has a more curious tale to relate of the New World horses and their history, and gives them an antiquity compared with which the events of man's primitive history in either world are but as yesterday. Recent researches amongst the rock formations of Western America in particular have shown us that it is to the New World we must look for a perfect pedigree of the horse. For, beginning with the horse of today with its splint bones, we are carried gradually backwards in time to the Pliocene horse of the New World named Pliohippus, a form not differing materially from the living horse, but serving in a very gradual fashion to introduce us to the older Protohippus the New World representative of our own fossil Hipparion, and in some respects a more typical three-toed horse than the latter. Our own Anchitherium corresponds to the next specimen of the New World, Myohippus by name, and Myohippus evinces a still more important modification in that it possesses a rudiment of the fifth or little finger, in addition to the second, third, and fourth digits with which the forefeet are provided. The American horses now continue the history of the race in time past without aid or representative from the Eastern Hemisphere, in so far at least as the latest research has shown. To Myohippus succeeds the Mesohippus from the American Miocene, which has three well-developed toes and in addition shows the rudiment of the little finger of the forefeet, seen also in Myohippus, in an enlarged condition. Passing to the Eocene formations, the oldest series of the tertiary rocks, we meet with the next step in the form of the orohippus, in which the little finger appears as a veritable member of the hand, the hind feet still possessing three well-developed toes only, whilst, consistently with the development of the toes, the ulna of the forearm and fibula of the leg appear as bones of legitimate size, 
and present a striking contrast to their rudiments in the horse of today. The last discovered horse is from the oldest of the Eocene beds. It has been appropriately named Eohippus, and presents us with four complete fingers, second, third, fourth, and fifth on the forefeet, and a rudiment of the first finger as well, with a trace of the fifth toe of the hind feet, this last member being, as we have seen, unrepresented in any of the other forms. When the chalk rocks shall have yielded up their fossil horses, it is consistent with logic and reason to expect that the primitive stock of the horses will be discovered with its complete provision of five toes and its corresponding modifications of form. To what conclusions of reasonable kind do these stable facts regarding the pedigree of the horse naturally lead? The answer is towards a belief in the slow and progressive modification and evolution of the one-toed modern horse from a five-toed ancestor. This process of modification must, of course, have affected its entire frame, but it is sufficient for our present purpose to point out that in the structure of the foot alone we discern the evidence for evolution as clearly as in the entire organization of the animal. An increase of speed, an obvious advantage over its enemies, would be gained by the horse as its toes grew small by degrees and beautifully less. And the single-toed race has thus practically come to the front in the world of today as the plain and favorable result of the work of degradation amongst its digits. It may likewise be mentioned that the conclusions of evolution and geology are strengthened by the evidence of teratology, or the science of abnormalities. Occasionally, horses are born with several toes, this fact being explicable only on the idea of reversion to a multiple-toed ancestry. Two bony shreds, or rudiments, thus lay the foundation of a grave conclusion regarding the horse and its manner of development, and exemplify the adage that great and unlooked-for results sometimes spring from beginnings of apparently the most trifling kind. The splint bones form, in fact, a clue which, when rightly pursued, leads not merely to a knowledge of the evolution of the horse, but to an understanding of the entire scheme of nature. For, if evolution is the law of the horse's history, it must logically follow that it represents the scheme of nature throughout. Since the uniformity of nature, in which we are bound to believe, and to which we are bound to appeal, would utterly negative the idea that evolution should hold good for the horse and be inapplicable to any other living thing. Because the missing links are not so completely supplied to us, in other cases, as in the horse, we are not on that account entitled to assume that the theory of development is invalid. We may not see an oak tree grow inch by inch, but we are as positive as our mental nature will admit that the oak was once an acorn, and that there has been a progressive growth and increase which might not be apparent to us were we to watch the tree for weeks together. Applying this reasoning to the case before us, it would be as illogical to deny that the order of nature was that of development as to insist that the oak was created as it stands. The extent of human knowledge and the duration of human existence are together inadequate to enable us to discern the progress of this world's order after the fashion whereby, from a lofty elevation, we may trace every winding of a stream. But the probabilities of the case are as overwhelmingly for progressive development as the direct evidence at hand, exemplified by the horse's pedigree tells against special and independent creation 
having been the way of developmental law in the making of the world and its living things. End of section 13. Chapter 5 Evidence from Rudimentary Organs, Part 2.